I thought the Super Bowl commercials this year were alright. Nothing special. I like the Cheetos one. I thought that was creative. But commercials back in the day used to be better. For several reasons. One of those reasons being you you got to there was there was a sense of anticipation. There was an excitement in not knowing what was gonna come next. And you know why? Because they weren't posted on the internet a week before the Super Bowl. I just I don't understand that. I was on the like I obviously <laughs> I've been on my phone and within the last week I've seen articles like watch Check out the new Super Bowl ads for this year. Why would I do that? The whole purpose is to watch the ads live during the commercial break, and you haven't seen it. You, you want to be surprised. I'm sure there's going to be a green M&M's commercial. I'm sure there's probably going to be a Budweiser commercial or Doritos commercial. Yes, that's understandable. In a sense, it's a little bit predictable because those are the same similar commercials every year. But why would you want to watch it beforehand? I just, I I don't know. I don't get that. Welcome to Motor City Hardball, presented by Blue Wire Hustle. On today's episode, do the Dodgers have the best rotation in baseball? The baseball itself is physically changing. Plus, a conversation with a man who's faced one interesting pitcher. Super Bowl Sunday came and went, which typically means that baseball is up next. Quite a boring Super Bowl, if you ask me. It's probably one of the most hyped-up Super Bowls we've had in quite some time, and unfortunately, it just didn't live up to the hype. Patrick Mahomes did not look like the Patrick Mahomes that we are used to. The Kansas City Chiefs didn't look like the team (laughs) that we are used to. And Tom Brady, well, I don't know how you could just bet against him at this point because even in his first season without being a part of that Patriots team and joining the Buccaneers and obviously having his friend Gronk helped him with uh, two touchdown passes to him which led to a 31-9 victory over the Kansas City Chiefs. It's a great time to be either a fan of the city of Tampa Bay, to be from Tampa Bay. You had the Lightning winning the bubbled version of the Stanley Cup Uh, finals back in September obviously you had the Rays make it to the World Series and now you not only have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers winning the Super Bowl but they did it in their own stadium which has never happened in the history of football so pretty good for Tom Brady but I'll tell you what some of the biggest baseball news happened over the weekend Uh, Trevor Bauer finally made his decision in terms of where he will sign in free agency, and that decision is that he will be going to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Supposedly, it came down to the Dodgers, the Mets, and the Blue Jays. Personally, I would have liked to see him go to the Blue Jays. I think that they're such a young team that has so much potential, and to be a team like that in the AL East right now, as powerful as it is uh, between Tampa Bay, obviously the Yankees, uh, and Boston, that isn't really sure if they're rebuilding or going to be signing players so far this offseason. Uh, I wanted to see him go there because there, you know, there is some potential 
in that Blue Jays lineup. They went and got George Springer, signed him to a five-year deal. They signed Marcus Simeon. So that was going to be, well, they still will be an exciting team to watch, even though Trevor Bauer will not be a part of their rotation. Uh, But Bauer ended up going to the Dodgers. Uh, He signed, so his contract was a $102 million for three years. He has opt-outs after each of those first two years. Uh, He'll make $40 million in 2021, $45 million in 2022. Uh, He will become the highest paid player in MLB history this season and then again next year. So Bauer went and got paid. Uh, The Dodgers obviously had no issues uh, giving him that much money. And realistically, looking at what the Padres have been doing in terms of replenishing their starting rotation, adding Blake Snell and Yu Darvish. Obviously, the NL West looked a little bit more competitive this past postseason with the Dodgers going to the postseason, and they looked dangerous in Manny Machado. And obviously, we know what Fernando Tatis is capable of. And just that that starting rotation in general, the, the Padres were a really good team before all of the moves that they made fully bolstered their entire team adding you Darvish, uh, adding Blake Snell. And then they went and traded for Joe Musgrove from the Pittsburgh Pirates. So the Padres have made it clear that they are looking to win and compete over the next decade when you consider how young Tatis is and the potential for him to get uh, a max contract extension soon enough. So while the Padres were making a name for themselves in the NL West, the Dodgers basically said, hey, we are the reigning champs, and you know what? We're going to go out and sign Trevor Bauer. And now that pitching rotation is heavenly, if you ask me, and opposing teams are really going to have a difficult time. You have Kershaw, obviously, uh, probably never going to leave the Dodgers. I think he's a free agent after the 2021 season. Uh, Julio Urias, who became a bigger name this year, wasn't necessarily that great in the past, didn't really live up to his potential prospect hype, but hey, we saw how great of a performer he was uh, in the postseason last year and closing out the World Series for the Dodgers. Dustin May, who's so young, has so much potential. Walker Bueller, also a young guy, total flamethrower uh, and nearly impossible to hit. Don't forget about David Price, who the Dodgers also got for in the Mookie Betts trade. Uh, and in case you forgot, David Price opted out of the uh, shortened MLB 2020 season. So Price didn't even play last year. Uh, and they still have him. And now you go ahead and you sign Trevor Bauer, who is he the best pitcher in baseball? That is up for debate. Um, I don't think so. I don't know if I could argue that he will be in the Hall of Fame one day. But we've seen, we saw his. Cy Young season in 2020, even though it's a shortened 60 game season, uh, he has the potential to really be one of the best pitchers uh, in baseball. He's still so young, and there's a lot more room for him to grow. And I'm sure being with the Dodgers, um, just with uh, their ability to uh, you know train and, and prep their guys over there, they got a great system going. And Bowers, it's scary to think that he could only get better. Uh, but he really makes that rotation so, so dangerous. Uh, and it's really going to be difficult, if you ask me, for the Padres. 
let alone anybody else in the National League, to contend and compete with the Dodgers. The Dodgers, they've been around, you know. They, they've got a couple World Series appearances in the last several seasons. They, they're on this uh, crazy postseason streak. But up until 2020, they had yet to win a World Series. And now, basically, they're letting it all on the table and saying, look, we just won the World Series. Let's keep riding this uh, this wave that we are on, trading for Mookie Betts, getting David Price. And you know what? Let's go out and get Trevor Bauer. So I don't blame them because baseball hasn't really seen a, a quote-unquote dynasty of a team uh, in some time now. Maybe you could count the Astros, but that has changed now that uh, their core has split up. They lost Garrett Cole. Uh, Justin Verlander and Zach Greinke are both going to be free agents next season. Uh, George Springer just left and signed with the Blue Jays. So we haven't seen a team in baseball win the World Series uh, in back-to-back seasons for some time now. And if any team is going to do that, at this point, it's looking like the Dodgers' chances are pretty high. In an effort to reduce the rising home run rate over the years, Major League Baseball is supposedly making an adjustment to the size of the actual baseballs used during the season. According to Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic, the ball's construction will change slightly, and five more teams are adding humidors for ball storage, all parts of MLB's attempt to reduce the wild recent year-to-year swings in home run rates league-wide. Supposedly, these changes will slightly depress offensive numbers this coming season, uh, and the changes to the baseball will be made in time for this year. Uh, the The Athletic also says that the upcoming changes to the ball will make it less bouncy, and one analyst has estimated that the changes would reduce home run rates by 5%. Uh, pretty interesting move here. There's been a lot of talks, um, whether that be uh, from players themselves, uh, a lot of fan theories out there, as to whether or not uh, Major League Baseball's baseballs have changed over the years due to the rising rate uh, of home runs that have been hit. Now, I personally don't mind seeing all the home runs i don't i don't see how uh, a ball i mean the argument to me is is somewhat confusing because you basically have you know everyday people that are claiming just fans that are claiming that uh, the ball is is changed and because of that it's it's easier to hit home runs now what's eerie about this whole thing is the numbers somewhat speak for themselves uh in 2014 there was 4186 home runs 2015 4909 homers 2016 5600 2017 61 homers in 2018 there's a bit of a drop uh, from 6100 total homers to 5500 but the biggest difference here is from 2018 to the 2019 season there was more than a thousand home runs uh, in that 2019 season than there was during the 2018 season. So there is this argument that the ball has been juiced and that there are, there have been more home runs hit. Well, there's no proof of the balls being juiced per se, but the numbers do show that there have been more home runs hit uh, over the years in Major League Baseball. So I'm not crazy over this uh 
rumor, I guess, that, that the baseballs had been juiced in an effort for more home runs. If anything, the home run is the most exciting play in baseball. There's nothing more exciting than a home run or a walk-off home run, a go-ahead home run. There's really no such thing as a boring home run, an inside-the-park home run. Uh, and <laughs> I wonder how many of those home runs were inside the parks. Probably not that many of them. I'm curious to see how much of an impact the change, the physical change to the baseball that this will bring. Uh, supposedly, it'll be as if there was an additional five more feet uh, of outfield fence to the ballparks. Uh, will that make a huge difference? I guess we will have to wait and see. Uh, you can definitely make some comparisons, though. In, in previous seasons, you don't have to wait the full season. You could look at uh, at the All-Star break, how many home runs were hit. I'm sure the baseball won't look or feel different in your hands, but the numbers might say otherwise. A couple weeks ago, I brought on my 96-year-old grandpa to talk with me about what baseball looked like when he was growing up and how different the game has changed how much the game has changed over the years, and how different it looks today. So I figured, why not continue that trend and see if I could bring someone new on to maybe bring a different perspective. So my uncle uh, happened to meet this guy, uh, Deuce McGonagall, a.k.a. Deuce, over the summer. They met golfing. Uh, and if you don't know, sometimes if you go to a golf course and you play by yourself, sometimes you get paired up. And that could be a good thing, that can be a bad thing, uh, or that could be a terrible thing, depending on how good of a golfer you are. Uh, my uncle got paired with this guy, I believe at Rackham Golf Course, uh, and they started playing with each other a couple times a week. They'd go out and golf. I, unfortunately, didn't get to, uh, to join that group. Uh, I look forward to maybe playing a little bit of golf with him this summer. Uh, but Deuce, he's a big San Francisco Giants fan. Uh, and Originally, the Giants uh, being in New York, uh, he grew up uh, always with a passion for those Giants. Uh, had some pretty cool stories to share. And he ended up facing a pitcher who didn't know that he was going to be a big part of baseball's history. I was born and raised in New Jersey, lived there for 72 years. I just moved to Michigan about two and a half years ago. Uh, lifetime baseball fan, uh, lived just outside of New York City where three of the most storied franchises in Major League Baseball history resided, the New York Giants, the New York Yankees, and the Brooklyn Dodgers. My father was a Giant fan, so it was a natural progression for me to do so. Uh, my basic baseball background is probably condensed into about uh, 11 or 12 years cut short by going into the Army. Uh, I played from around age eight, which probably would be a little league type thing right now, maybe a little bit later, but it was I was eight. And I played until I was 19, and then I was drafted into the Army in 1966. I was going to play in the Army, but was sent to Vietnam. The only game they played there was staying alive, which was probably more important than baseball. <laughs> so so basically, uh, I played Connie Mack 
and on a semi-pro team. And I have a couple factoids that are uh, related to that. I played against a left-handed pitcher called Al, Al Downing from Trenton, New Jersey, who pitched for the Yankees, the Dodgers, and I think the, the A's, I'm not sure, but won like 134 games. So he was pretty accomplished. Uh, I played against him in a Connie Mack State playoff game. He was 19, I was, I was 15. And uh, he pitched a perfect game against us, nine innings, and hit a grand slam. So his main claim to fame, other than that, is that he was the pitcher who uh, Hank Aaron hit his 715th home run off of in April of 1974. Another guy I played high school ball against, his name was Kurt Bleffrey. He was from Mawa, New Jersey, which was a town next to Ramsey, New Jersey, where I went to school. He eventually went to Wagner College and was drafted, uh, I think, by the Yankees, but didn't sign yet. He subsequently signed with Baltimore and was the 1965 Rookie of the Year and also a 1966 member of the Oriole World Series team. I also played on a semi-pro team called the New Jersey Highlanders. I was probably 18 to 19, and then I got drafted, so obviously I didn't play there anymore. Uh, there were some accomplished uh, ex-major leaguers in that league. They were being paid. Uh, we had a couple of guys on my team that were being paid, but I was not, so I was never any kind of a pro. Uh, one of the highlights, I, I have to tell you, I think is very unique, is the manager and owner of the team, his name was Lou Eskin. He was an esteemed Hall of Fame boxing referee and had friends who were in management at, at Sing Sing Prison in Austin, New York. And he probably also knew some of the inmates <laughs> that he might have trained or refed as boxers. But, but anyway, uh, we actually went and played in Sing Sing. I went there five times. And uh, it's just like, it's like nothing you've ever seen. The security was immense. The uh, inmates that were allowed to attend the game were fenced off from us. Uh, the inmates that were playing and umping were obviously on good behavior. And they had some, they had some couple of pretty decent players. But we won all the games. And uh, we had to be frisked four times going in. And they booted us in the ass going out. They couldn't wait for us to leave. To to jump back a sec, so you you went to play at this prison, and so so what what did the field look like? What was the what did the state was the stadium like or the stadium? Did, was it just like a little backyard field with no fence? Like what what did that look like? Yeah, actually, it had it had dugouts. It had obviously full screens all over the place. They had stands on both sides, probably, I would say, equivalent to a high school field or something. I mean, you know, they probably could have seen, you know, a couple hundred people, and they didn't, but they could have. The field was extremely odd because it was in 
uh, <clears throat> the left field wall was an actual wall to the prison and was 30 feet high with, you know, guards and gun turrets all around it. And that was about 170 feet maybe. But right field was, was like 450 because it was in a rectangle. And I guess that's the only way they could, you know, conform it. So it looked kind of like a baseball field and probably mostly had right-handed hitters. So they made it so that the left field was really short. But you had to hit it out out over that fence for a home run. So it was like the green monster, but like, you know, ten, three times higher or whatever. So, and, and the field was, was all dirt, uh, not in great shape, wouldn't have uh, slid there, you know, considering the circumstances. Do you remember how you did? I, I did pretty good. I played shortstop and third base, and uh, I batted somewhere in the top of the order, I think, most of the time. And I, I, I did pretty good. I had a bunch of hits. Uh, you know, they're... They had one good pitcher, and the rest of the guys were, were terrible. So, you know, we ended up playing, I think, six innings. A couple of times we only played like four or five because, you know, it was just ridiculous. And these guys were starting to lay down in the outfield. They were smoking cigarettes and stuff. So, I mean, I guess their time outside didn't equal the amount of time it took to play a game. And I guess they wanted to get back in and play cards or whatever the hell they do. But they were all very cordial, didn't have any problems with any of them. They, they were really happy to see us. We weren't allowed to talk to them. They talked to us incessantly, and we just, you know, they knew we weren't going to say anything back, but it didn't stop them from talking. So it was a really unique experience. I mean, the place is just foreboding. We had to go through three gates to get into this area where this locker room was. We weren't allowed to shower. We had to drive up in our uniforms, play, and go back in our uniforms. They didn't want any change of clothes where we could have had anything hidden or anything. So it was it was kind of, uh, you know, it was pretty strange. You definitely cannot do that in uh, today's world. <laughs> I, can't, I can't see a bunch of outsiders just coming in to play a game against a bunch of prisoners. There's just no way that that could happen today. Um, I, I wanted to talk about, you had mentioned, you know, playing against Al Downing, who was the pitcher that gave up the home run uh, to Hank Aaron that broke the record for most homers of all time. So you were, you played in the, the Connie Mack league. Yeah. That, yeah. I don't know what it is here, uh, Brandon. It's not, we call the Connie Mack. It was 15 to 19. So you okay. basically could be, like a, a freshman in college and still play in this league. So there were some pretty accomplished guys on the, the top end of it. And he was a case in point. I mean, he was amazing. Was there, a, did you have to try out or did, was it just like you could show up and anybody made the team? No, no, it was, there were definitely tryouts. Uh, little league, everybody played. Then we went to what we called uh, Babe Ruth. That was 13 to 15 and that was a uh kind of a semi-cut because we sometimes had a hard time getting enough players and the Connie Mack was 
an area that they drew from. It was a county. So yeah, that was very competitive to uh to play. You had to be you had to be pretty good to play in that league. I was a freshman in high school when I started and there was seniors and, and you know, freshmen in college that I was playing against. So there were some pretty tough dudes in that league. Well, Downing went on to to play for the Yankees when he was twenty. Yeah, right. So that was probably the year after that he he went in, he was drafted. I think the first year he didn't he didn't do anything. I don't know if he, I think he was on the team or I don't know, maybe in a farm team. But I looked him up a while ago and it doesn't show him being on anywhere but on the Yankees, but he only got in maybe one or two games that first year. But you know, back then they they didn't really have relief pitchers. They were just starting to come in uh, one of the stories I was going to tell about, you know, my first real experience that I can vaguely remember, it was because there were no relief pitchers. So Downing probably that was drafted, you know, out of that year. And and what they did was they had a, a what they used to call a regional draft. So the Yankees, Giants, Dodgers, all all had you know first dibs on anybody from, you know, South New York. Uh, Connecticut, Long Island, New Jersey, and he obviously was from New Jersey. He was from Trenton, but he was highly acclaimed high school and, and uh, you know Babe Ruth athlete. Obviously, were most of the ball players back then were they from the East Coast? The East Coast, would you say? Like, was the East Coast did that have a dominant saying geographically in terms of where the best baseball players were coming out of? Uh. Not not necessarily, but they like I just said, the, those three teams that you would never see, like you know the uh, whomever Cincinnati would never come to New Jersey and try to recruit anybody because they they wouldn't even have a chance, and and the guys in on the you know New York teams would very rarely venture outside, you know some of these guys like you know Willie Mays was born in uh, Alabama. Uh, Hank Aaron was born in Alabama. They somehow got up somewhere and, and ended up, you know, it wasn't the, the Negro leagues or whatever. And uh, so back then it was it was basically regional, yeah. So a lot of those guys uh, came from from the area, but in 1960 you got to realize these teams have been in, in existence since the 20s, you know. So they had their their history, the I mean, Yankees' history with Ruth and Gary and and DiMaggio, and Mantle, and, you know, all those guys. You went to the Army, and you got drafted at 19, you said. So when you, how long were you in the Army, and then when you came back, what did your baseball life look like after afterwards? All right, so actually I was, I was uh, 20. I turned 20 in December of 65. Uh, I had been in, in college. For a year, and then I stupidly took a semester off, and everything got real hot. They hadn't, they didn't have a draft lottery then, but but they started the draft. And the month I got drafted was the second largest draft month in the history of the United States. So off I went in uh, July of '66. I was going to play in Fort Lee, Virginia, is where I was stationed. I was going to play on their team. Tried out in the winter, and then I got levied to Vietnam, and I never got to play, and, you know, didn't have anything going on over there. 
coming back, never played. Never played another inning of hardball. Played some softball probably, I don't know, in the 80s. And, you know, just couldn't believe how bad I was <laughs> and how mm-hmm. old I was. <laughs> so it was basically just being a Giant fan after that. I mean, I really didn't have anything going on. So you were you went from being an athlete, being a baseball player, and it pretty much consumed your life up until, you know, college, and then you went to the Army. You come back, and baseball was no more in terms of you playing it. But that was when you you got this passion for the Giants, correct? Which at that time, what, when when did the Giants become, when did they move to San Francisco? All right, they moved in the winter of 1958. So the 57th season was the last season for the Dodgers and the Giants. They both moved and they were in San Francisco and L.A. respectively that next season. When when you had gotten back from the war, was were those was that like the first time that you were attending games, or did you go? Did you grow up also going to Giants games or Yankees games? Uh, I did. When I grew up, I went not not a lot, but I went. Uh, I remember when the Giants came back first time to to uh, the polo grounds where they used to play, where the Mets played when they first started in 1962, I came back for a doubleheader. My, my buddy and I went down there and we saw that game. We saw those games. And uh, the, the, the stadium was an absolute horror show. It was never really nice, but it was, it was horrible shape. You know, I don't know. They got this team. They had no place to play. And I think they were building a stadium. I think in 64 they might open Chase Stadium. I'm not sure. I would go to games sporadically. I just, you know, they would only come in once a year. And, you know, if I was doing something or whatever, I just didn't go. But it, it didn't stop me from rooting for them. I followed them as best I could. Now it's great. I mean, you've got this MLB. you got, you know, have your own uh, – they have their own website. You're up to date every like every minute <laughs> what's going on. It's just totally different. And and talk about a long distance romance. And I couldn't have been any farther away. So the the polo grounds. I don't I don't know that much about the polo grounds. I only know about the stadium because there is the. It's called MLB the Show. It's like the baseball video game that you can play. And they have a bunch of like the classic major league stadiums and one of those being polo grounds and it's impossible i mean it's ridiculous the dimensions of that field and it's ugly (laughs) and it's it's massive and i i guess there was uh some deaths that happened at that stadium uh cleveland indians shortstop ray chapman he was hit in the head and he had died uh at the polo grounds so there's definitely some some craziness that happened there. Do you have any crazy stories that you can remember um, when you were attending those games back at Polo Grounds? Uh, not really, no. Uh, I, I actually saw there was a, a, a thing on, on TV about uh, the bad, bad things about baseball, and they went back through all these things where these guys actually – 
tried to kill each other. I mean, if if a fan didn't come out and try to kill you, the, the pitcher tried to you know knock your head off, and I think more than a few people died from getting hit in the head from a pitcher. Right, because there was no helmets in those days. Yeah, no, they no, they didn't have anything. The, the mitts were like a paper bag, and you know, there was no helmets, and you know, the, it was just it was just uh, nasty stuff. I mean, these guys were just, they were just not good, and they didn't get paid a lot of money. And they were, most of them were probably were bad guys to begin with if they could play. I mean, there were some decent guys. That, like, uh, I think is it Ty Cobbs was be one of the worst worst guys that ever lived. I mean, yeah. Nobody could even talk to the guy. He was just horrible. And he was a phenomenal player. So no, nothing happened to me there. The only thing that's memorable there to me uh, like I told you previously, was when I went and got the uh, Willie Mays autographed the ball for me. That's probably my most memorable time there. I actually went in the clubhouse and standing right in front of me, he put a beer beer on my head, <laughs> and then he signed a ball and gave it to me. How did you get in there to to meet Willie Mays after the game? I. I my best friend's father owned a, a steakhouse in Clifton, New Jersey, which was probably about 20 minutes from uh, Manhattan. And he had all the, all the giant football and baseball players used to come in there. And uh, he knew that, you know, he, he me and his uh, son, Dickie, uh, were best friends. And he knew I, I loved Willie Mays. So he said, come on, we're going to a game. we got really good seats. He said, i got a surprise for you guys. So we go through the whole game. We sat right behind the dugout. We had great seats. I forget who the manager was, but, you know, he, he knew uh, Frank Alberta, the owner. So after the game was over, he said, I'm going to go in the clubhouse and meet meet the players. And we're like, what? What? So we walked all the way out to the center field, which is where the clubhouses were. So we went up. We went into the clubhouse. and there's Willie Mays. So uh, Frank must have said something to him. So he comes over and he goes, you're Deuce, right? And I go, yeah. He goes, you know who I am? (laughs) (laughs) I said, well, I probably knew who you were. You probably didn't know who I was. Yes, I know who you are. He says, I heard you're a big fan. I said, you were my favorite player. And he was, they had just won the World Series the year before, and he had made that phenomenal catch. I don't know if you've ever seen it. The famous Willie Mays catch. Yep. So he was a, he was just rolling then. He had a really good series. He was on top of his game. So, you know, I took that ball. It was going to be my treasured memento for, for my life until my brother mistakenly took it and played a one-a-cat game with his friends and lost it. So it's gone. Never found it. You were you were telling me about that game. I had never... It was water-cat, right? No, one-a-cat. Oh. One, O-N-E-A-C-A-T. <laughs> one-a-cat. Yeah, okay, you got to realize something. When I was growing up, there was no batting cages. There was none of that stuff. We had Little League Baseball. We played one game a week. We practiced one day a week, and the rest of the baseball we played was ourselves. We played wiffle ball. We played everything. But the one a cat was played on a field that had a fence, 
there was a pitcher, a batter, and an outfielder. You got 10 pitches, three innings, each guy, you know, switched the positions around. So each played the position once and, and you got up uh, 10 times and the guy with the most home runs won. And it was usually, uh, you know, a Coke or a Sunday or something, you know, we all chip in and, you know, we buy the guy that won. So the, the ball that was used, somebody hit it over the fence and we could never find it. The Willie Mays ball. Willie Mays signature in front of my two scrubby eyes. So I'm telling you the truth. I didn't get it at a at a you know memorabilia show or anything. And he was the nicest, fun guy. And now he's a bitter man. And because I think I was talking to you about it, he'd be making those you know forty million a year as good as he was and. Guys, I don't think he made. He might not have made a million dollars in his career. He maybe did, but I doubt it. If, if it was, it wasn't much over that. So you are still a San Francisco Giants fan. Have you been to any games within the last, however, so many years? Have you gotten a chance to go to? Uh, I call it AT and T Park. I think now it's like Oracle Park, just because. The, the name change, but have you ever gotten a chance to go to that stadium? No, I, I, I think I told you, I had been to San Francisco three times and just because of why we went and who we went with and whatever, they were never in town when I was there. So no, I really? have not. Uh, yeah. The last time I saw them was I think in Shea stadium I think the, maybe in 2009, because I think Tim Lincecum pitched. I saw that game, and the time, the only time before that, since they moved away, you know, I'm sorry to admit, was against the Phillies, like in, uh, God, I don't know, 2005 or something. So, uh, no, I live baseball. I've actually had friends of mine that have gone out there and got the games, and I haven't. The one thing I think is was really probably a, a benchmark for me, and I barely remember it, was the Bobby Thompson home run in 1951, the shot heard around the world. Are you, are you aware of that? I'm familiar, but I don't know that much about it. I'll just thumbnail it. The Giants and Dodgers ended up tied for the pennant in 51. The Yankees had already won. So they had a three-game playoff. The Giants, I believe, beat the Dodgers in the uh, season series. So they got two home games. It's two out of three. So they took the second and the third game. So that if there was a third game, they'd have it at home. little uh, risky. So they played, actually played the first game in in uh, Brooklyn, Evans Field, and they won. So they came back, and, and, you know, they're looking to close it out, and they lose the second game. So the uh, third game, bottom of the ninth, second and third, one out, they're down 4-2. So 
Bobby Thompson comes up, uh, infielder, outfielder, little acclaim other than this particular instance. Willie Mays is on deck. They have first base open. The Dodger manager says, I ain't pitching to Willie Mays. We're pitching to this guy. So he calls the bullpen and he says to the guy down here, who, who can you bring in? And they didn't have relief pitchers in 1951. So so the guys, the pitcher would pitch the whole game or, or his arm would fall off. Somebody going to throw the last couple of innings. So he said the only guy that didn't bounce the ball to the catcher in the warm-up was Branca. He says, get him in here. So Ralph Branca comes in. He was a starting pitcher. Some acclaim. He wasn't great. He wasn't terrible. He was in the middle of their rotation, probably. So he, he gets a called strike. Next pitch, boom, left field. They win 5-4. And the place went insane. It was packed. And the Russ Hodges was the announcer. And you go back, just look him up. Russ Hodges, New York Giant baseball announcer, 1951 playoff game, Bobby Thompson home run. He said the Giants win the pennant like a hundred times, one right after the other. It was amazing. So that was a pretty much a first thing that I, I can really connect with. And a little aside there, that a good trivia question, nobody knows, was in the uh, one of the Godfather movies when Sonny Corleone is they're gonna you know they're gonna hit him, so they get him out to uh, Jones Beach and he's going up to the toll booth. Have you seen this movie? I have not. I've been meaning to see. I've been I've been meaning to watch it, but I have not. I think there was three of them. This might have been the second or the third one. I'm not sure. So he goes up to the toll booth and there's it's in the winter or not actually I'm, I'm, I'm not on the winter it's in the fall because because of what I'm going to tell you he pulls up to the uh, toll gate I mean, there's, you know there's nobody on the beach and the guy's standing in the toll booth and the radio is playing and it's Russ Hodges saying the Giants win the pennant he was listening to the giant Dodger game that I just went over with you. And they get out with the, the machine guns and they just they riddle the guy and kill him. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a trivia question. I, I know nobody's going to get it unless they're tremendous diehard Godfather fans. Fab, fabulous little anecdote right there. Thank you for joining the show today. It was very educational for my sake. I'm sure for anybody else who got to listen, um, really interesting story there about Willie Mays and for you getting to play against uh, the pitcher who gave up the home run to Hank Aaron to to set the the record. Thanks for asking me. It, it was really cathartic for me to, to go back and go over some of this stuff. He's a lot of old memories that I, I really I'm, am fond of and very rarely think about. So it was fun for me. Special thanks to Deuce for joining the show today. Also got a shout out Eli Weil. 
Eli created the theme music and transition music for this show. Uh, Tune in next week for a new episode of Motor City Hardball, Wednesdays at 3 p.m.